welcome everyone to episode 18 of the Citizens Guide. On today's show, Connor and I are going to discuss uh, President-elect Joe Biden's picks for his national security team and Treasury Secretary, uh, the recent pardon of Michael Flynn, the beginning of the Trump-Biden transition, YouTube's recent suspension of One America News Network, a new approach to the pandemic being taken in Rhode Island, Pope Francis's op-ed in the New York Times, and finally, we'll wrap up with the assassination of Iran's top government scientist. So Connor, let's start with uh, some names that we got from the Biden team this week about who is gonna kind of head up his national security team. I'll just run through the top names real quick and then we can just dive right in. So for Secretary of State, Biden plans to nominate Antony Blinken, who served as Vice President Biden's national security advisor and was a Deputy Secretary of State under uh, Barack Obama. For National Secur Security Advisor, he plans to nominate Jake Sullivan. For Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, who is a former Deputy Chief of the CIA. Uh, for Department of Homeland Security, he plans to nominate Alejandro Mayorkas. And for Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Uh, and then he has decided that John Kerry um, will lead up his climate change policy. John Kerry's obviously uh, former Secret Secretary of State and former Democratic nominee for president. Connor, what do you think about these names? Are, you know, do we, do we know who these people are? What do you think? Um, you wouldn't know who these people are because one, they don't have the last name Biden and <laughs> they were not big donators to the Biden campaign. So that's, that's an A plus that's we're moving in the right direction there. We have, we have competent, educated people moving into these positions. So that that's one reason I'm excited. Um, unless you're um, Marco Rubio, who who's upset that there are too many Ivy League educated members of cabinet now. Right. Because mm -hmm. that yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ignoring the fact that so many of the people who have served in the Trump administration went to Ivy Leagues. Um, yeah, I mean, our country is run by people who went to Ivy Leagues. That's, yep. it's not, I mean, it's not great, but it is, that just is what happens in these transitions. Um, yeah, I agree. I think, I guess to note some of these, Avril Haines will be the first woman to lead, to be the director of national intelligence. And Alejandro Mayorkas will be the first Latino to head the Department of Homeland Security. So those are both barrier-breaking appointments. And then Linda Thomas-Greenfield will be the first Black ambassador to the United Nations. Um, so several kind of barrier-breaking appointments. Um, beyond that, to me, it just seems like it's very establishment. Nobody on this list um, is a surprise. None of this is really like shakes things up from like, I guess the democratic status quo. Um, I have a quote from Thomas Wright, who's the Brookings Institution foreign policy scholar. He said, uh, referring to Biden, his presidency may be the establishment's last best chance to demonstrate that liberal internationalism is a superior strategy to populist nationalism. Um, do you have any thoughts about that quote, Connor? Uh, scary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I think for the most part, a strong American international presence has been a good thing in some instances of, of international crises. And I think you've seen this retreat from 
from this leadership role under the Trump administration with, with horrendous effects all across the world. I don't think we could point to a single international incident that has occurred in the last four years where it's been a good thing that we've done America first and followed that sort of sort of policy, at least in the short run, and, but most definitely in the long run, there's been, I don't think any, any tangible benefits for the US or its allies. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of in that line of thinking, Biden did an interview with Lester Holt this week. Um, and he said, quote, this is not a third Obama term. Um, we face a totally different world than we face in the Obama-Biden administration. He added, President Trump has changed the landscape. It's become America first. It's been America alone. So that's one point. Um, as Secretary of State, it's expected that Antony Blinken will work really hard to reestablish um, American relations, both with like our like traditional Atlantic partners in Europe, but then also um, across the Pacific into East Asia and working with kind of a global set of partners to tackle really big issues. Another really notable thing um, is John Kerry leading climate change policy. And John Kerry is kind of a, like an ultra establishment figure, I would say, but he knows how to work within a government. And he's worked with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to craft a climate policy for the Biden White House. It's not the Green New Deal, but it's it's something really close and it achieves many of the same goals. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to see John Kerry kind of taking this up. I know Connor, you and I joked that we maybe wish Al Gore had been given- um, There's still big, domestic role to fill. Yeah, yeah. We think Al Gore needs to re-enter the spotlight to give Tennessee <laughs> some good representation um, in our government again, because we're sorely missing that, I'm afraid. Um, I, but yeah, go ahead. I think that it's, I think what they will be able to achieve won't be groundbreaking because I think it's hard to expand a house if the house is on fire. So I don't expect any monumental, to be pragmatic, I don't expect any monumental shifts from, from an Obama, late Obama era foreign policy. I think there will be some course correction perhaps but I, I wouldn't hold my breath for any sort of Marshall Plan-like um, international sort of policy or agenda. No, because we need a domestic Marshall Plan. We need to We've, get our own house in order, I'm afraid. It, um, yeah, the, the house is on fire outside and inside. And everything's be, on fire, perhaps. And it's going to be a lot to do, <laughs> a lot to do. But these are these are people who I'd want to see in charge and have the reins of power over like Rick Grinnell. Right. Yeah. And I guess another point, Jake Sullivan, I think, is in her his early 40s. So that's like very young to be such like a high level official. And I think for me, and I'm sure it is for you, it's exciting to see a younger generation um, start to kind of get into these positions. There's a lot of these people served as like deputies or like assistants during the Obama administration. And now I mean, it's kind of- the Clintons. Yeah, some of them, I think um, Linda Thomas-Greenfield goes mm -hmm. back to the Clinton years. Um, so it's exciting to see kind of a younger generation take power, even if those people are like generally regarded as establishment figures. I don't think anyone expected Biden to name a lot of like ultra progressives to his like foreign policy, like national security team. Um, that being said, 
I hope that Biden is brave enough and that Congress will agree to really look at how the Department of Homeland Security is run. And I think the, the, the secretary of that department can be integral in that journey because I think we, as we've seen with the Trump administration, it can be used as a very terrible tool of government. And it's a very new tool. We've only had it for like 19 years now. Like it's not something that we've relied on for hundreds of years or anything. So I think reform should be on the top of people's minds in the Department of Homeland Security. And yeah, yeah. And I, th- and I think it will be. I think, I think the disaster, the the just crimes committed at the southern border by the Department of Homeland Security is is something that is it Mayorkas? Mm-hmm. Mayorkas will will be will be looking to undo and then sort of just like do a little post mortem and see like what how how was this department weaponized in such a way? Yeah, there's as much as like we don't want to think about and we don't have to right now there will be another Republican president in the future because of the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will once again weaponize the Department of Homeland Security and use it in the same way that the Trump administration has used it. And that's to harass people um, and just do some really heinous things. Um, so everyone's okay. favorite topic of institutional reform. Yeah, of course. Off. Everyone wants to spend their day thinking about the Department of Homeland Security <laughs> and why it's broken. Um, Connor, do you have anything else on this group of people before we talk about who he's probably going to nominate for Secretary of the Treasury. I know that's an area of interest for both of us. Um, no, I'm excited for um, Greenfield because she, in her, in her, in her, um, Linda, Linda Greenfield, in her, in her speech, she talked about bringing gumbo diplomacy. Yeah. And I appreciated that. Yeah, she's a, she's a Louisiana native. And I, she has served in the State Department previously. I think she was... I could be wrong, ambassador to Liberia at some point. That, I think I've read that, don't hold me to that. Um, But yeah, she's a big fan of inviting like lots of different types of people to her like residence and like making gumbo and like like forming relationships that way. And I think that's a really, really interesting approach to foreign policy. Um, I can't quite imagine um, some of Donald Trump's appointees making gumbo for foreign uh, leaders. Mm Um, okay, Connor. So the next thing, and this is a little bit less official, just so our listeners know, I think it'll be announced probably this week. Um, but Janet Yellen is more than likely going to be his nominee for Secretary of the Treasury. And she is, um, she's a former academic. She taught at the University of California, Berkeley. She was also the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, as well as a Fed governor and the Fed vice chair and then ultimately the Fed's first female chair. So she has spent a ton of time working at the Fed, but now she'll probably be at Treasury. Connor, what do you think about her? I know we talked about her last episode. Two weeks in a row, getting to talk about monetary. She's getting getting a lot of love from us and and Uh I'm a fan, I'm a fan. Well, I think she would be an excellent choice. Very, I think as we said last episode, very establishment, very nose, knows the limitations and the institution of the treasury and also the federal reserve. And I think knowing both of those, like knowing how those two systems work together will be especially crucial 
if she is chosen because the Fed will play an enormous role in, in if not solely um, acting as a sort of like fiscal slash monetary response in the absence of a unified Congress to provide um, more generous aid to businesses. Um, so I'm excited for that. And I think she is a new Keynesian sort of mentality to her monetary theory. She's a labor economist, which is very important to understand how to adjust um, these different levers for high unemployment, which we are facing right now. Like she's, a, she's the woman for the job right now. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I agree. Um, one thing that made me happy is when the news kind of broke that she would most likely be the pick, Elizabeth Warren tweeted that she would be, um, quote, an outstanding choice for Treasury Secretary. So that should hopefully put um, kind of progressive worries at ease about her because she has been like in government for so long. Another thing that'll be interesting to watch is how she transitions from being um, kind of in what's supposed to be the nonpartisan Fed to what will probably be a hyper-partisan treasury. Is the, you know, the Secretary of the Treasury being a political appointee um, needs to work on policy directed by the president. So she'll have to bargain with Congress um, to try to get these big, big, hopefully big stimulus packages passed that our economy needs. And she um, seems to be in the mood to do that. She, I think she understands that the economy needs uh, massive influxes of cash and that that people need um, lots of cash right now, um, as well as hopefully working with uh, President Biden on uh, student loan forgiveness. I think that's probably at the top of a lot of people's minds. Um, one thing I saw, she did an interview in 2013, and they asked her like why she got into economics. Um, and, you know, she, she has kind of been the first female of a lot of things in her career because she is uh, kind of on the older side. So she, and that's not, not in a bad way, but she, you know, she's been around the block. Um, but basically in response to why, why she cares about economics, she said, I care about people and that quote, I discovered that economics was of enormous relevance to our lives and had the potential to make the world a better place. Um, and that's in 2013 after she had, you know, worked through the financial crisis, um, like she knew what she was into. That wasn't some starry-eyed college undergrad. That was someone who had seen what economics can do for a country um, and how bad economic policy um, can nearly unravel the global economy. Um, mm -hmm. And so now I think, like you said, she's best positioned to kind of lead us out of what has been a tumultuous four years for an economy um, regardless of what the stock market says, the fundamentals of our economy are not as strong as they should be. Um, the pandemic has highlighted that. The wealth disparity is at an all-time high. Um, so I think I'm excited to see what work she will do. And I think it's interesting that for probably the first time in a long time, people will really pay attention to, to policy coming out of the Treasury Department. Yeah, it I think with most things in the Trump administration, feel free to comment. I think a majority, no, I won't say a majority, a plurality of Americans have been awakened to the powers inherent in these institutions that normally wouldn't get this sort of 
coverage or explanation because it's been so ruinous and the people in charge have been so incapable and incompetent that people are starting to realize that, oh, wow, these, these pillars of our, of our governance are, are important and they have a lot of power to do a lot of bad, but also the possibility to do a lot of good. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that sentiment. Along with that, I hope that people will continue what they've done for the last four years and pressure these people to take bold progressive action on things. Because we can't just, and I know this isn't anything we've suggested, we can't say, okay, now that Joe Biden's president, we can go back to normal. Because, you know, it necessarily a lot of Democrats did not vote for Joe Biden in the primaries, but a lot of us did in the general election. And so it's incumbent upon those of us who had questions about him at the start to push him to the left. Um, so I think, I think people like Janet Yellen will be willing to listen and, and work with progressive leaders in Congress and progressive organizations to um, create some lasting change, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And I just have two quotes to sort of finish my statement. Yeah. I saw one, Joe Biden recently did an interview where he asked whether Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would be nominated to his cabinet. He said that he was thinking about it, but he also stated the need to have strong progressive voices in the Senate to be able to move legislation in, in that body. So maybe sing, sing, signaling that he may not remove people. He also, it wasn't exclusive to the Senate. He said the House and the Senate. So it may not be exclusive that he would seek to pull people from the two chambers for his cabinet. Do you have any? Yeah, I think he probably shouldn't take people out of the house because our, our majority is just razor thin, um, uncomfortably thin. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think, I think he wins by saying that because yeah. he doesn't have to have Elizabeth Warren knocking on his door every morning to talk. Um, but also you have like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, Tammy Baldwin, super progressive senators pushing the Overton window to the left, getting yep. it to where Medicare for all is the mainstream, getting it to where um, like getting out of this like Reagan era economic policy that's been so ruinous for so many people. I think it is necessary to have their voices in Congress and I, I can't wait to, to have that. And I, I hope that those voices are in, in the majority, but if they're not, they'll keep doing the hard work that it takes um, to change things. Yeah, and then I think, one bit of criticism I saw from a New York Times author was some allies of Mr. Biden's on Capitol Hill worry that Mr. Biden's choices for the biggest jobs in government look too much like professional staff with no big personalities who may be better suited to help driving policy. I think if the worst criticism is that they're too professional for the job, then maybe, you know, it's a good cabinet choice. That's just such a... God, that... <laughs> People will just look for anything. That that just reminds me of when in 2016 Chuck Todd suggested that Hillary Clinton was overprepared for a debate. It's mm -hmm. like you you pick these excellent people to work in our government, and and the media will still find a way to complain. And that's not even like a good faith critique. Like if you're gonna critique, like say you know, like my critique of Janet Yellen would be, hey, she's probably a little too concerned about the national debt. Like she probably needs to reel back. I get it that she was educated at a time when people were really concerned about national debt and some people still are. I personally am not so concerned. I think we could lower the military budget and probably pay off some of our debt. Mm -hmm. um,
but but make it a substantive critique don't say well they're too boring so they're not going to get good ratings like i don't care i don't care if they're going to get good ratings this is it's not supposed to be a reality show yeah exactly and this this connor is a great transition into our next topic and that's donald trump pardoning michael flynn um it just it's so black and white difference um tell us about that so donald trump has pardoned michael flynn former nsa no national security council leader or is the national security advisor, national yeah, security advisor. <laughs> mm-hmm. and that raises questions whether this outgoing president will look to use the pardon to inoculate himself from legal difficulties after he's left the presidency um michael flynn was charged by the justice department for lying and for um like uh, fraud and he admitted he was guilty he said he pled guilty to those charges the Justice Department looked to the spring to get those charges dropped because of Attorney General Barr. Um, Michael Flynn is not not worthy of a pardon. He's dangerous. He's a QAnon supporter. He he's a criminal. He's a criminal yeah. who who criminaled for Donald Trump. <laughs> um, so yeah. I'm not surprised, and this won't be the first name, most likely, that Donald Trump will use to pardon his his former cronies yeah everybody's lining up now yeah i I read through a big list of people george papadopoulos um rick gates manafort what's man what manafort paul Paul manafort paul that's his name i don't Um, think michael cohen's gonna get a pardon because they all have four letter first names and i get all mixed up Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. yeah everybody's lining up for a pardon now and you know i this is the part of a presidential administration where they do get handed out like candy i will admit Mm -hmm. um and it just has opened up kind of a Pandora's box of who's he going to do next, which is just terrifying and so bad for our justice system. I, one is, you go ahead. No, no. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> one of the people advising the president on these matters is Alan Dershowitz, which is so funny to me. And he said that the president, quote, was very interested in the concept of the pardon power being more than just clemency, but being part of the system of checks and balances for excessive legislative or judicial actions. Connor. Alan Dershowitz is not a lawyer. No, no, (laughs) not at all. Yeah, but. (laughs) On paper, maybe. maybe. For now, for now. Mm -hmm. Um, But what, what a silly thing. The president isn't interested in how his pardon power is part of the systems of checks and balances. He doesn't know what those words mean. I also saw that they were writing it up as a tool he'll use to finish his 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 le- greatest legislative achievement of criminal justice reform. He's not gonna. No, yeah, we'll see. We'll yeah. See. Um, um, the pardon power can be just such a such an awesome display of grace. From the president i think and former presidents have used it um to pardon yeah like uh non-violent drug offenders and and people like that um but boy oh boy but he sees it as a tool as a prop as a prop yeah. of the presidency as when he pardoned people during the republican national convention lest we forget he used uh, it as a tv stunt yeah he did Good um <laughs> I just think as it makes an argument for why do we have a three-month period between lame duck presidencies? Yeah, among it's weird other other things where they're able to destroy evidence and hide their crimes from the incoming administration. I think yeah. 
I think we should bump inauguration day up to New Year's. I think that would be a cool way to start the year. Or what just if make it was just like a, a week after, you know? Well, I feel like that would have been a little chaotic this year <laughs> since it, hey, yeah. you know, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe. Check that into the institutional reform episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So next thing, because I just have no patience for Michael Flynn and refuse to spend a lot of uh, <laughs> breath on him. Um Finally, Connor, the transition from Trump to Biden can start because on Tuesday, November 24th, the administrator of the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy, informed the Trump administration and President-elect Biden that the transition process would begin because the ascertainment had finally been signed. Um, She wrote, quote, please know that I came to my decision independently based on the law and available facts. I was never directly or indirectly pressured by any executive branch official, including those who work at the White House or GSA. With re- oh, sorry, sorry, I lost my, lost my try. With regard to the substance or timing of my decision, to be clear, I did not receive any direction to delay my determination. Connor, to me, that sounds like a lie. Um, but you didn't have to say for, that, you know? She like, yeah. It raises more no, questions now. It was so unnecessary for her to even bring it up. Like she spoke it into existence and now it's all I can think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a result, the Biden team now has access to millions of dollars in federal funding, State Department aid in coordinating calls with foreign leaders and opportunities to work with the government agencies on a vaccine distribution plan. And that's just kind of the base layer stuff. Everything else will kind of build up around that. Connor, this is excellent news, but yeah. because it was delayed, more Americans will die. That's yep. that's the truth of it. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's it. I hope I hope GSA Emily found a job since she was looking in. I bet in she did. Era. I I think I think that little time period she she found a job probably. Um, she, she hopped on ZipRecruiter and just found herself a job. <laughs> um. Yeah. Good thing it happened. Um. I saw that one of the things that biden was missing was his calls with foreign leaders weren't coordinated through the state department so he didn't have access to translators on these calls so just a hurdle it's challenging a challenge i don't to my knowledge joe biden is not fluent in a foreign language i could be wrong but i doubt i doubt when um you know the president of ukraine's calling you know he's just spitting out some ukrainian they just open up hunter biden's laptop and (laughs) translate translate all the documents are there Mm -hmm. connor they're they're all they're all there (laughs) too too little too late but i'm glad it happened yeah Yeah. just another reason why it's important to have like dedicated public servants in these positions and not puppets like it's just so important and once again i hope some intern in the white house is tasked with how to provide legislation to congress to make the gsa administrator a nonpartisan position because it should just be like maybe a committee of people sign off on it or like there just shouldn't have ever been so much power in one random person mm-hmm. um, who mm-hmm. seemed like Emily Murphy, like what, what gave her the right, you know? Nothing, nothing. She, she might've given a lot of money. Yeah. Or, yeah. Honestly, honestly. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So are you, are you good? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to turn to big news on, on the internet. Oh, Wow, that's how how hip and cool of us, Connor, to talk about the big news on the internet this week. Let's just jump into cyberspace. So <laughs> YouTube, the video sharing platform, has yeah. suspended 
has suspended one American news network, OAN, to our listeners um, for violating its terms of coronavirus misinformation. Um, we've talked about OAN before. It's a puppet news network that has ties to Russian intelligence branches and just misinformation. But which recently, is exactly what the founding fathers had in mind when they authored the First Amendment. Like they were, that's what freedom of the press is. It's so that Russia can so fund the news operations. Could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Um, but um, typically, this has now resulted in a loud, sustained backlash from Trump and other Republicans who have claimed without offering systemic evidence that Silicon Valley is biased against conservative voices. Um, my thoughts on this are, thank goodness, I don't think OAN should have a platform as public as YouTube. It shouldn't have a platform at all because all it is is disinformation. And sure, let them cry about <laughs> conservative bias. They like it. They like, no they feed on it Connor. they, they, on they it. need to be the victim they need to be yes. the victim i think one important thing is that the suspension is only for one week um yes. so and that's that was the last tuesday so two days from now they're back on um, and this has it's grown substantially since trump has been in office i saw that it has over a million subscribers and some videos get over a hundred thousand views each day so this is not becoming a like like we said earlier like does this look fringe to you? Right, no. right. When is, no. yeah, 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 yeah. This, this um, isn't a fringe network anymore. I well, had a question yeah. for you, Connor, about this. Mm-hmm. Do you think YouTube would have taken the same steps had Donald Trump won a second term? Or do you think this oh. is Silicon Valley trying to like cover its like four years of allowing this to happen? And they're afraid that the Biden administration is going to regulate it. I think they're they're afraid the Biden administration is going to regulate, and I don't think they any action they take now. I don't think it would change any minds. Yeah, because Elizabeth Warren and Katie Porter are kind of already on the case. Yeah, I'm afraid. And I think, you know, again, too little, too late with these people. They they had four years to just indulge themselves in these conspiracy driven like clicks and monetization, and now, yeah. and now that someone who isn't just who, who doesn't who doesn't deal in these things who doesn't depend on conspiracy theories to prop up his presidency they have to face the cold hard truth of they've been acting irresponsibly yeah joe biden got 80 plus million votes for president by telling the truth to people yeah that's yeah. just i mean like that's it it was as simple as that um and yeah that's like part of the vicious cycle is that youtube makes money from this because of ad revenue so like the market is incentivizing them to leave it up. Pierce, it's almost like the market itself is <laughs> yeah. flawed in some cases. Yeah, it's almost like <laughs> capitalism can't regulate itself and, and you need uh, the strong hand of government to intervene. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> like- That's it. It's, and... <laughs> it's just so simple, but like good for YouTube again, but like I will not like praise them for doing the bare minimum. I refuse. No, no. Um, they're not, it's not freedom of speech. For youtube to keep these channels up it's not engaging in no. the marketplace of ideas when they don't have credible ideas to begin with exactly and because like once you start clicking on these videos the algorithm just feeds you more like it doesn't say oh they're watching one american news network let's show them a clip from msnbc about the same topic so maybe they can make their own decision it's saying oh here's a breitbart piece for you to look mm-hmm. at like mm-hmm. it's not 
not fair and balanced, if you will. No, no. And another another section for our institutional reforms episode, we just keep racking up. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Silicon Valley, we're coming for you. Because you need to be regulated. You've been able to get away with too much for too long. Um, okay, Connor, unless you have anything else on YouTube, yeah. any more internet news? Uh, I think that's all from cyberspace this week. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, okay, so the next piece is COVID-related, and it is about the great state of Rhode Island. They have decided, Connor, to take the most obvious and logical step to lower their numbers. They have decided to close bars, gyms, casinos, movie theaters, and bowling alleys, but leave schools open. Connor, it couldn't be more simple. This is an excellent idea. Children need to be in school safely. There need to be plenty of resources provided to students, teachers, staff, parents to make this work. But it's so stupid that it took us until the end of November to figure this out when other countries have been doing this since February and March. Um, yeah. I have a quote from... David Rubin, who's the director of Policy Lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and they've been advising schools on how to open. He said, there's a fair amount of data that schools can be open safely during the pandemic. Um, but he also went on to say that um, you have to kind of consider your positivity rate, which is again, information that we've known, but we've just, because there's no been no relief for local and state governments, there's once again been an incentive to keep financially profitable businesses open at the expense of education systems. Is like obviously a public school isn't raking in the cash. And had there been that backstop there from the federal government, we wouldn't be in this mess. And it all like boils down to state and state and local governments aren't able to run deficits, but the federal government can run as large of a deficit as it wants to. And it has chosen to just do nothing. What do yeah. you What do you think about this? I think from the end of the summer, maybe the beginning of the summer, we've known that those places you've mentioned have been places of high transmission and they invite, invite people to act in a way that goes against what stops the disease. Schools, on the other hand, are a very controlled environment based on like the data we have since, since people have gone back to school. And it just couldn't be more painfully obvious what the public policy response should have been. The, the federal government should have provided money to, to businesses. They should have paid them to stay closed. And so everyone has a, has a job in a sense. They all have their income. But the, the government acts as the customer and is able to to close these these spots of transmission while keeping schools open because like we said, like it can be controlled. And I think that will be the greatest flaw of, of our response is not observing this this like public this this policy that's worked for other countries. Like you've, we've seen in Europe the past couple of weeks as their cases have spiked, they've taken these steps again because they were getting sort of lax. And what we've seen is a drastic decrease in new cases. Like all their little arches are going back down. Um, because and they understand science, they understand where this is coming from, and the government is acting in a way that supports this response, and you don't yeah. have this here. Absolutely, and once you close down all these businesses and pay them to stay closed so that people are able to provide for themselves, 
your your case numbers go down and that makes it even safer for children to be back in school like it makes it safer for the teachers to be there makes it safer for the parents staff all that um i have a quote from Rhode Island's governor, Gina Raimondo, she's a Democrat. She said, I think there are massive long-term negative impacts on our children for ke keeping them out of school for a long time. Every child deserves that same opportunity. It shouldn't just be for the parents who choose to and are able to pay tuition. That was in reference to private school staying open, which her children go to private school. I'll talk about that later. Um, throw, throwing in the towel and letting kids stay home for a year and a half to languish, it's just wrong. Um, no, I won't, I won't harp on that too much. I do think um, when people are in positions of public trust, their children should attend public schools, um, especially if they're in a position to administer those schools. Um, just my, my little- Little soapbox. Yeah, my little public school soapbox. Um, but yeah, like it, once again, it's common sense that children should be in school and it should be made as safe as possible because the implications for especially low income students missing this like valuable like education time, like we won't be, be able to quantify it. It will be so bad. Yeah, yeah. And I just, it's just so clear what, what this policy should be. And you, what you see is like mismanagement from the very top. Like yeah. that's where where the blame ultimately falls is with this administration. Yeah, and when was the last system. time Secretary DeVos had a had a press conference about this and advised school systems on how to handle this? I think cell servers might be spotty on the yacht. I yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that yeah. But mm. it's just so clear because once once you take these steps, then case numbers drop drastically when you remove these these places for transmission. And then, like we've said before the economy and public health are not two separate goals, they're intertwined. Once you have a safe, like, once you have a public health infrastructure in place, the economy is able to do better. Um, yeah. So it's frustrating. Yeah, I agree. It is very frustrating. And we both have educators in our family, Connor. So like, mm -hmm. this is like a personal thing. Um, yeah. I know. Um, okay, let's move on to Connor. Pope Francis wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. He had a lot of Pope wisdom Francis. to share with us. Yeah, just a reoccurring so, character, apparently. He's I know. Decided he keeps, to just he keeps popping up. I don't know what it is. We're you and I. We're not even Catholics. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know. But we keep talking about him. So tell us. Tell us what's going on there. So, Pope Francis. There's two parts. Pope Francis wrote an op-ed in response to, in response to. I'm using air quotes there, not directly naming any names, but. For my cyberspace friends, subtweeting is what the word the kids use. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's right, so, everyone. I, I second that. So SCOTUS, in a five to four vote, blocked restrictions on religious services that Governor Andrew Cuomo has introduced to fight the spread of the coronavirus. The majority found that Cuomo's restrictions violated the First Amendment protections of free exercise of religion. These restrictions specified that depending on infection rates, the number of worshipers at religious services could be limited. Justice Gorsuch concurred writing in effect that it was unconstitutional to have laws regulating churches and synagogues while allowing liquor stores and bike shops to reopen. Um, there was a couple in the dissent, Justice Sotomayor said, free religious exercise is one of our most treasured and jealously guarded constitutional rights. States may not discriminate against religious institutions even when faced with a crisis as deadly as this one, but those restrictions are not at stake today. Justices of this court play a deadly game in second guessing the expert judgment of health officials about the environments in which a contagious virus now infecting a million Americans each week spreads most easily. So that's the sort of stage they were set up. And then um, 
not Justice Francis, Pope Francis wrote an op-ed <laughs> that said um, a couple of things, a couple of great paragraphs, but mostly just sort of noting that that these protections put in place by the government is not an infringement on personal liberty and freedom, and it doesn't, it's not an attack on faith. Um, to quote his thing, to quote some of his things, he said, with some exception, governments have made great efforts to put the well-being of their people first, acting decisively to protect health and to save lives. The exceptions have been some governments that shrug off the painful evidence of mounting deaths with inevitable grievous consequences, but most governments acted responsibly and poked in strict measures to contain the outbreak. Um, and he said, as if the measures that governments must impose for the good of their people constitute some kind of political assault on autonomy, on personal freedom, exclamation mark. I noticed the exclamation part as well. That no. I, Connor, these two paragraphs that you're reading, these are the exact ones I was going to read as well. I'm glad we are sharing a brain on this. And I wonder how many times in the history of the Catholic Church, the Bishop of Rome has used an exclamation mark um, in his writing. I bet it is not very often. No. And he said, looking to the common good is much more than the sum of what is good for individuals. It means having a regard for all citizens and seeking to respond efficiently to the needs of the least fortunate. So I have more, but what are your, what are your... No, it, it was a moving op-ed and I recommend people kind of search it out if they can. And I, I do want to read those last two sentences again, because I think they're really valuable um, pieces. Um, Again, looking to the common good is much more than the sum of what is good for individuals. So the good of the whole over the good of the one. It means having a regard for all citizens and seeking to respond effectively to the needs of the least fortunate. And Connor, what we've seen in this pandemic is that the least fortunate are suffering the most as is always the case in our society and societies across the globe. And here he is begging America basically yeah. to get its act together. And, and to fix what is happening in our own country because it's a tragedy every single day that we're waking up to and that people are living with every day and our first responders are not, again, still don't have the resources they need. Our hospitals are filling up. Um, we're entering like a very dangerous part of the pandemic as it gets colder, as people are inside more, as transmission is going to increase. Um, like I, I, was, I was thankful to read this because like I said, like we're not Catholic. So there's like not a super big connection there, but I still see him as a very moral leader. And I think you can read it. And even if you aren't like a, a religious person, you can say like, this is what like shared humanity is about. Like this couldn't be a more important time to like reach across national borders, to reach across like all of the things that divide us to just like work hard to protect our neighbors if that makes yeah. sense. I just think yeah. it's so important to focus on this. Some might say the dogma lives loudly in him. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Some might, some might. And um, this is comes especially important because the deciding vote on the SCOTUS case was Justice Barrett, who, who was attacked viciously for her Catholic face. Yeah, we just, yeah, Democrats just couldn't stop, could they? Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that we now have a Catholic president-elect. And and a Catholic speaker of the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it so, doesn't count because they're Democrats, Connor, because yeah, Democrats yeah, yeah. can't be religious. Yeah, so it's just all comes in just a very bad faith argument that, that faith is somehow under assault. And when you have the Pope, the Pope of your religion, of, of, of the Catholic faith, basic, I, I think of this as he's writing to Justice Barrett and yeah. saying, listen, 
It should be read that way. It should be. And that's not to say, I don't think that's to critique and say, well, the Pope should get to tell Catholic justices what to do. It's to say that she props religion, her own religion up on a pedestal and then goes against the most basic tenets of it. I think that's what it does. Politicizing it. Yeah. And using it as a political tool to gain. That's exactly what she's done her entire career. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Until it gets uncomfortable like it is now. Yeah. To to quote more, because it's just such a <laughs> such a work of like rhetoric. Um, he moved on from the pandemic saying, God asks us to dare to create something new. We cannot return to the false securities of the political and economic systems we had before the crisis. We need economies that give to all access, that give to all access to the fruits of creation, to the bas- to the basic needs of life, to land, lodging, and labor. We need to slow down, take stock and design better ways of living together on this earth. And then he said, feverish consumer, consumerism <laughs> breaks the bonds of belonging. It causes us to focus on our self-preservation and makes us anxious. Our fears are exasperate, exacerbated and exploited by a certain kind of populist politics that seeks power over society. It was, yeah. it was a beautifully written segment and like, or op-ed and everyone should go read it. Um, yeah. But there's he gets at I guess what we've also been saying is that there's more to the root of this problem than just these people behind it. It's 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 an infection of our of our society of how we have decided to treat ourselves and yeah. how this pandemic has only highlighted these these awful awful differences and perceptions of how we view ourselves and our role in in like a communal society. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so important to try to find, find some wisdom where you can. And I think, I think with that, we found some. Um, Okay. Moving on to a less um, wholesome topic, I guess. Um, Iran's top nuclear scientist was uh, assassinated on Friday um, during a roadside ambush um, while he was traveling outside Tehran. Um, one American official along with two other intelligence officials said that Israel was behind the attack on the scientist. It was unclear how much the United States may have known about the operation in advance, but the two nations are the closest of allies and have long shared intelligence regarding Iran, uh, which Israel considers its most potent threat. Um, Connor John Brennan, who was the CIA director under Barack Obama, called the killing quote a criminal act and highly reckless. What did you think about this? For me, it's very troubling and uh, portends a very uh, rocky relationship with Iran, at least at the start of the Biden administration. Yeah, I just, I don't think the U.S. government, as is stated, I don't think the U.S. government should play skeet shoot with another cab, with another country's cabinet. Um, and not the, the U.S. government's not, as far as we know, not involved in the, in the direct killing of, of the scientists, more just Probably yeah. Not- typically, Israel does ask permission before they do stuff like this, though, because if if it hits the fan worse than they expect, then somebody's got to come fix yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Is so. is it fitting we started this year with the assassination of Soleimani, and now we're ending it with yeah, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But very troubling that that these are sort of the the steps Israel and by proxy the united states are taking under this final like last gasp of a presidency yeah. 
yeah, it's inappropriate to do it right now, even if there was good cause. Um, mm-hmm. And I, yeah. on an ethical ground, it makes me nervous when you start assassinating scientists. Yeah, yeah, Just, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Yeah, and like a chief goal of the Biden foreign policy team is going to be to try to renegotiate a nuclear deal with Iran so that stuff like this doesn't happen, so that Iran can pursue a nuclear program for energy, but not for an atomic warhead, which will make the world safer Mm -hmm. and the region more stable. Um, But things like things like this make it really difficult to renegotiate that agreement. Cause if Iran says, well, every four years we get either a, you know, a partner or a maniac, then they're not going to want to deal with us and they're just going to do what they want to. And it's going to destabilize the region worse than it already is. Yeah. Yeah. Bad, bad bet. But also I saw someone comment that this is also what happens when Biden doesn't condition aid to Israel. So they, they feel less empowered to sort of abide by these sort of like new standards Biden's going to be bringing in if they know they'll be receiving aid anyways. Yeah, that's definitely a topic for us to discuss because I think that is a one, one area of big disagreement that you and I both have probably with the incoming Biden team is um, kind of a soft hand with Israel because like Netanyahu is such a dangerous character um, mm-hmm. and will be for the foreseeable future until he's finally... Um, convicted of his crimes <laughs> that he has committed in israel um and that's like just what that's, has happened that, that's the facts yeah um okay unless you have anything else connor i'm gonna wrap us up yeah that's great okay news too dumb to be true this week for me is that donald trump paid three million dollars to recount the votes in wisconsin's two largest counties and joe biden's lead grew by 87 votes so we did the math and that's thirty four thousand four hundred eighty two dollars seventy six cents per new Biden vote. So Connor, that's a steal, first of all, for some new votes. Because, you know, when the Democrats stole this election this year, we had to pay a lot more than that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a Black Friday Um, deal. But just how stupid, how stupid that he thought that this would make a difference. Um, Yeah, I I feel bad (laughs) for the the people who've been grifted by the president and who donated to the election defense fund that had their their money just bought new biden votes it bought new biden they found them in the warehouses 87 Mm -hmm. of them Mm -hmm. on the dominion software but it's good because out of two large counties with lots and lots of voters for the discrepancy to only be 87 votes between the original tally and the new tally that seems really good and efficient yeah i think we've done a a good job criticizing the flaws in the election process this year, but compared to the doomsday scenarios we were pitched, mostly it yeah it, it, worked. it worked. The it worked. The, the system worked for the most part. Yeah, not in the right ways, but <laughs> again, a topic for another episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gave us yeah, like we can be like safe in knowing that like our votes were counted for the most yes. part. I think yes, yes. Yeah. Um, was that it for you? It is. It is okay. So. I would like to travel to the other state where the president ordered a recount after the state official recount and still lost, Georgia. Um, This week, Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel went to Georgia, not intended to be a press conference, but it turned into a press press conference where she received questions from a crowd, quote, a crowd of fiery Republicans who turned the RNC's chair session Saturday into a public airing of grievances. For nothing... 
Nothing, that's sad. Poor her. Nothing's more excited than a bunch of aggrieved Republicans thinking their vote was stolen. <laughs> I can't think of anything more common. Yeah. Um, so she pointed to the certified results of November 3rd Senate race that showed Purdue leading Democratic challenger John Ossoff by more than 88,000 votes. She said, it's not decided. This is the key. It's not decided. Um, but then she received the question of why should we vote if the system is changing our votes against us? And, you know, hey, that's a valid question, Republicans. So she responded, so if you lose your faith and you don't vote and people walk away, that will decide it. Um, and one, one questioner alleged that voting machines change votes cast in favor of the president. And Ron McDaniel had to say, we didn't see that in the audit. So <laughs> we just got to just that evidence we haven't seen. So we will have to wait and see. And just what a mess that you have to, as a national party chair, walk this line of coddling the president and has to, has to have the talking points of saying the vote was rigged, but also convince your, your party to vote again in an election yeah. less than a month away. I don't envy her, but away. she's also terrible at her job. Yeah. She, yeah, she has no business doing what she does, but they have created this monster and now, <laughs> now they have to deal with it. They have made their bed and now they will lie in it. And um, we can't assume that just because some people are saying this, like Republican turnout won't be astronomical. I think we saw that we couldn't assume low Republican turnout ever again after the last election, 2020. Um, but just the fact that you have these vocal people questioning the party chair, chairwoman and saying, like, they believe these things. They believe yeah. that, that votes were, were manipulated and they themselves have lost faith in the system. So, but, but it's your own fault anyways. It's the party's own fault for coddling yeah. these rumors anyway. So it's just this whole, whole mess. I oscillate between like, why well, I want everyone to have faith in the election. So I need them to vote and good, like stay home. Yeah. So I have to figure out how I feel about it. Yeah. I think I need to lean towards wanting everyone to have faith in the electoral system. But if the short-term benefit is for Democrats to get control of the Senate, maybe it's a risk worth taking. They can, the short-term benefit is Democrats get put into the Senate and then they pass a massive voter rights yeah, franchise yeah, we will, and yeah. everyone can have trust in the system everyone again. gets to vote yeah but they don't and want the, that just a little tail into that um president trump called in to do an interview on fox and was talking about governor kemp brian kemp of georgia saying the governor's done nothing he's absolutely he's done absolutely nothing i'm ashamed that i endorsed him <laughs> but i look what's going on it's so terrible wasn't it's, the alternative in that primary someone who drove around in a bus that was like with a big sign to like send illegal immigrants back to Mexico or I, I, that, might that, have been that might have been Brian Kemp because I've looked Maybe at some of his old ads and they're spicy. Yeah. And so again, if I'm a Republican and I'm looking at Brian Kemp Ugh. being torched by the president, I have to wonder what does my continued loyalty by except degradement by this man that is now controlling of the party's future. Yeah, but he'll keep doing it. Yeah, it just doesn't just make so any attached. sense. It doesn't make any sense. Logically. It's not rational. But that, no. you know, when has it ever been? So <laughs> just just a bad bad week to be a Georgia Republican. Yeah. Well, shout out to our Georgia listeners. I know we have a few. So shout out to mm -hmm. y'all for tolerating yeah. such nonsense in your state. 
yeah <laughs> not that not that tennessee people get to hey, be hey, all hey, high hey. and mighty what? about politics because because it's a mess here too so thank you thank We've you got a bunch democrats. of malarkey in our state don't yeah yeah thank you georgia forget. democrats um okay one last thing my recommendation connor you're aware i've been reading a book this week <laughs> and we're very proud yeah <laughs> um and i've been reading it for a while but i'm like i'm almost done with it it's called after the music stopped the financial crisis the response and the work ahead it's written by alan blinder who's a princeton professor wall street journal columnist and former vice chairman of the federal reserve board and it's basically a complete history of the financial collapse in 2008 2009 um and then kind of maps out some reform ideas for the road ahead um it's been so interesting connor i think i've learned so much about economics during it um, and I know nobody's going to read it, um, except for you probably when I bring it to you in January. <laughs> but I, I think it's so useful to look to the past, and this is kind of my history major soapbox, looking to the past to find lessons, because I'm learning about things that Janet Yellen can do as Treasury Secretary to fix the economy. And it just, it's connecting a lot of dots for me. And I wanted to share that with listeners, because I think it's been so, so good for me and so educational. Are there any some some fast facts you want to share oh you put me on the spot it. you put me on the no, spot but just no, more no. the answer is more regulation okay um, okay Good. Sim simply more regulation we need to look mm -hmm. into how we compensate uh traders on wall street as well as ceos because mm -hmm. we incentivize them to look at the short term rather than the long term yeah, so yeah. that's one little piece i can share and i feel and everyone you've read the book well done <laughs> yeah yeah now you don't even have to you don't even have to pick it up um the scare the daunting part was when you start a book and it has four pages of abbreviations that you have to mm. kind of learn before you start reading that was horrifying i'm looking forward to receiving it yes you should be you should be okay well thank you everyone thank you for listening as always thank you to new listeners old listeners everybody for continuing this fun journey with us um connor and i are buckling down for our final week of classes and then finals week. So send some, send some good vibes our way. Cause I think, I think we need it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, hope you had a good Thanksgiving and we'll see you next week.